Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been sponsored by SmartEQP.com. SmartEQP.com gives independent distributors three competitive advantages. End quantity pricing from more than 90 of the top promotional product supplier lines, quality connections from some of the brightest minds in the industry, and cutting-edge training from top secrets of promotional product sales. To give yourself an unrivaled combination of EQP buying power, quality connections, and cutting-edge training, visit SmartEQP.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you're a new listener, the PK Podcast is a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, CEO of Common Skew and Right Sleeve, and I am flying solo today as my regular co-host, Danny Rosen, is away at some fancy internet conference today. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Gene Geiger as our guest on the program. It's an honor to sit with Gene as he is one of the busiest and most in-demand executives in the industry today. For those who don't know Gene, he is the CEO of Geiger, one of the largest family-owned and most respected distributors in the industry. Gene has had the top job at Geiger since 1978 after working his way up from purchasing agent when he joined the company in 1973. Gene is the company's fourth CEO and leads a company that was founded in 1878. Yes. That's 1878. Very, very impressive. In addition to Gene's day job at Geiger, he has volunteered countless hours in the industry as a PPAI board member, technology chair, and product safety champion. Gene has a love of politics and spends a lot of time contributing to the welfare of his community in Maine. I've come to know Gene as a thoughtful, down-to-earth, eccentric, and exceedingly successful business person. We are no, privileged. Wait a minute there, Mark. Just, let me just jump in here. Eccentric. <laughs> I resemble that remark. Oh, it's great. And, and I, I mean, one of the things that I've really come to appreciate about Eugene is that you are excellent on Facebook and other social media channels and walking out in fancy garb and costumes and to the satisfaction of your many, many fans. So I love it. I, I've, been, I've been known to be coerced by my colleagues into dressing up and doing things that apparently cause amusement to salespeople and others in our organization. Apparently, I'm good at, at being goofy and being a fool, and I, I'm much sure I'm proud of it, but it certainly seems to work. I've been too many things and too often dressed up as a woman, but it's part of the job, apparently. <laughs> well, you know, you didn't think that my introduction was going to be all these glowing accolades, right? I had to throw uh, I something not. in there as well. But... Abso- absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that, that stuff was... That that was going too far, and and I uh, I'm glad I jumped in to bring an end to it all. Exactly. Well, and it, that was right at the end. And you know what I tell you, Gene? I I think that actually is a, a great place to start. You know, this idea, as I've indicated in my introduction, here you are, the CEO of one of the most respected and largest companies in the industry, someone who's got a lot of um, a lot of success under their belt. Yet, at the same time, you're seemingly without ego, and you're very comfortable putting on women's clothing and going out on stage to <laughs> at, at Geiger sales events. I've also been the Geigernator, so I've been a rough and tough kind of guy, too, in addition to being Lucille Ball and, and some other nefarious women. But 
uh, I can I can go back and forth. So it begs the question. Tell me about your approach to leadership, Gene. What makes a great leader, in your view? You know, uh, uh, it's first of all, it's 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 hard to sort of put some of these things in the word, especially where the implication is that I'm supposed to be uh, at least a decent leader. Putting me aside and trying to think through what is it, what are sort of the things that good leaders are doing. Mm. I think you first have to sort of start off by realizing that people in an organization watch and key off of the person who leads the organization. So therefore what he or she does sets the tone that people then use as a measure of how they act and how they decide on things. So the leader is sort of in a spotlight and as such, that person's attitude, uh, what he or she exhibits, demeanor, is being watched by others, and a positive attitude infects others in a positive way. Mm. So that attitude and that presentation, let's say in times of turmoil, a calm is keyed off of. And when there is a lot of pressure, when some things are going wrong, then people really pay attention mm. to how that person acts. So that's sort of the first thing. You, you sort of realize that you've got to act in a role that helps other people, especially when they are watching you and needing help. Right. Then you've got other sort of things that are very important. Every organization has a set of values or should have a set of values, and hopefully those values are positive and helpful to the organization. So that leader needs to understand what those values are embody them. In other words, you've got to walk the walk mm. as well as talking the talk, and that the leader needs to be involving everyone in the organization to understand those values and to exhibit them, live them, perform using those values as a guide. A leader certainly has to have a vision for the organization, and that vision has to be able to be explained and communicated and essentially to rally everyone in alignment right. behind that vision right. and then execute. You've got to have it, and then you've got to get people to understand how they link to it and how we all, they all need to execute to help accomplish it. Right. And then one of the things that sort of occurs to me, and, and, and that is, at least in terms of how I see it, I don't buy into the supreme leader knows all, does all kind of notion. I don't think companies succeed because there's one genius heading things up and everyone is just falling in line uh, in lockstep. I think the best organizations have a whole lot of good people who work together to accomplish great things. And the great leader puts the team at the center of things mm. and looks to get individuals to contribute at a high level but mostly it's sort of a, an orchestra leader that gets the most out of the whole. Right. So I think sort of the, the team comes first and the leader is an enabler, not a Napoleon on a horse kind of thing. Right. And Gene, you've been at Geiger since the 70s. Did you learn this approach to leadership over the last 30, 40 plus years? Or have you always been like this in terms of putting the team at the center, being selfless, dressing up like a woman from time to time on stage? <laughs> I'm going to come to regret that. Or and I think what I'm getting at is I'm curious about the path that you've taken. So you start in your young career in the 70s. You're just out of school. You join the family business. And I'm interested in the evolution 
of Gene Geiger as a leader from that point in the 70s to now in 2014? I mean, surely you've evolved. And I'm curious about that journey. Well, you know, Mark, I guess what I've just said is sort of a takeoff on how I see myself. And there's other kinds of leaders and there's other ways of doing things. My father was an extremely strong character and a dominant figure. And for a long time, I struggled being the oldest son of this godlike figure in yeah. terms of a commanding personality. And so I couldn't do what my father did. Mm. And it turns out that over time, I ended up being trained and learning at the foot of my dad's right-hand man, a mm. fellow who was both our chief financial officer as well as sort of a general manager of the company. And this fellow was revered and respected because of his intellect and because he didn't lead by bombast or order giving, but rather by thoughtful questions, by encouragement, by uh, respecting and nurturing others. Yeah. And I guess I must have learned something from him. And so I'm not sure how, if I can describe how I've done what I've done, but I think everyone, anyone who is alive and working and paying attention mm. has to grow through every experience inside of a business and in external jobs. And over time, yeah. you, you watch, you learn, and you try to do better, and, and you try to make fewer and fewer mistakes. But over time, you learn that you know less and less, and other people know so much. And in a room of people, no single person is as smart as everyone in the room together. Right. So that's how I've come to think of it all. Yeah, that's fascinating. You know, I'm curious, would things look different for you I mean, this is a hypothetical question, but I'm, I'm interested in, in seeing what the answer is. Would things look different for you now, Gene, had you been trained by your father, who you describe as this strong, almost godlike, domineering type personality, versus his colleague, who was more nurturing and team-oriented? I probably would have washed out of the company and not been here because I could not do what my father did. Right. My father was this enormously outgoing fellow who made uh, gut feel kind of decisions and didn't listen terribly well, but was pretty doggone smart. Mm. And I couldn't be like that if I wanted to. Right. So with me and probably with pretty much anyone, you've got to walk your own path and work to your own strengths. And I'm just fortunate to have been in a business where I was able to do that. Right and not have to suffer the consequences of working for somebody else in a non-family business. Right. I can imagine that would have been an interesting time back in the early 70s when you were just joining the company. But uh, I want to switch gears a little bit, and I want to talk about the franchise, independent salesperson, affiliate model, as it were. And for those that are listening, Geiger of course, is one of the top leaders in this particular space and has been for many decades now. Gene, I'm curious to get your thoughts as the industry continues to evolve, and we're in a very different space now in the 21st century, as to where you see the future of the independent salesperson affiliate slash franchise model going forward. Hmm. Well, let me think. There are probably going to be a lot of different variations and different ways for companies to be successful in this world that we're moving into or we're in right now. Right. But there's a, a couple things that strike me. First of all, I would start out with, I'd back up, I guess, a bit and say, 
what customers know today mm. and how they interact with and buy from us is changing. Mm. And I think the changes are being driven in large measure by technology and technological innovation. So people know more than they ever have. Mm. And in some cases, they even know more than we know about mm. something. Yep. They have access to more sources of product than they ever did. They learn about the products that we're selling from places that were never opened up before. We used to be the ones showing people new stuff. Yep. And so they learn about what we're selling differently than they used to. I saw a quote the other day, and I used it in a presentation at NALC in Boston this August, where the assertion was that buyers are 60% through the deciding and buying process before they make the first contact with their potential sources of supply. Yep. So my observation is that customers' prospects have been Amazonized in terms of their expectations of what they want from us. Yep. And a variant of this, you've got large customers, really large companies, who have very special needs. It used to be that large firms had all these divisions all over the place, and their purchases used to be decentralized and under the radar screen and very hard to get one's arms around if you're a big company. Mm. Now those firms want to limit the number of vendors they deal with, yep. and they want to control and allocate how they spend their marketing dollars. Mm. So and they can do this because they've got internal systems that allow this, and because they can hook up electronically with their vendors. So they want to have a very few number of vendors, or maybe just one vendor of promotional products. Yep. So I think our industry is being impacted by two very large long-term trends. One is the rise of selling or purchasing via the internet and large firms consolidating their purchases because of technological tools that are now available to them. Right. And so as I think about this stuff, I think one has to see that there is strength in networks. And that means the smaller firms which used to be and in fact frankly are still the mainstay of our North American business are vulnerable because of how costly it is to build systems to address these large trends. Yep. And so whether the answer is a franchise or affiliates or whatever, it seems to me some firms are going to see the need to be part of some larger alliance, some entity, buying group, whatever it is, some alliance, or they're going to lose business to those firms who can better position themselves on the Internet, who can satisfy these consumer expectations of Internet buying and online reporting and all this other stuff that companies expect when they, or individuals expect right. when they shop online. So it just seems to me there's going to be some need for that if I'm correct on these large trends. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely correct on these trends. There's no question that we've been trained by Amazon to search online and to expect the best price and I would say best quickest service. I'm curious if you look out in say five, ten years and, and I completely understand what you're saying about the value of these large networks that are able to invest quite aggressively in technology to allow for their people to, to stay ahead of the curve. What do you see the future for the 
truly independent distributor in the next 10 years. And what I define as an independent distributor is either someone that's not part of a large affiliate network like yourself or someone that is building, let's say, a truly online e-commerce model like the branders or the e-promos of the world, but more that middle part of the market of distributors that aren't affiliated with people. Where do you see that market going? Well, it seems to me individuals or firms like that better have a really, really strong knowledge of their customers and their customers' needs and be embedded in their firms, in those customers, yep. so as to give them better service and support than can someone who is just selling online, right. just offering a product. They better be offering some value that goes beyond making ordering easy or that sort of thing. Right. To me, that would be the most logical thing I can think of. But traditionally or historically, an awful lot of people in our industry have been product shoppers for their customers. They go to a trade show and they come back and say, hey, I found a new product for you. And if you're just product shopping, I think you're a whole lot more vulnerable than mm -hmm. if you are essentially embedded in the marketing department of a customer and are, are so smart and knowledgeable that you're delivering the best possible solutions to them. Right. Let's talk a little bit about the technology side for a second, Gene, because I know that you've invested a fair amount in technology at Geiger and you also have an e-commerce business in Crestline.com. How do you balance those two sides to your company? So on one side, you've got this kind of direct selling e-commerce model. And then on the other side, you've got more of a traditional model where you've got independent salespeople that work across the country and that tap into your services to process orders and to manage customer relations. How does technology factor into both sides of that model? Let me just start off by saying that Crestline is a company we own because we bought it in the mid-1990s and it was basically a catalog company. Okay. And any company today that is selling without a field sales force, even if it has a catalog, also has moved into the web internet space as well. And so we've had to move and adjust, and the most prominent firm is for imprint and, mm. and they've done a spectacular job of, of expanding from being a catalog seller to selling on the internet so well, and, and they're the firm that anyone who's online is chasing. Mm. In terms of, of us, we've had to invest a lot of money in all sorts of technology tools for Crestline so that we're relevant and easy to do business with online. But we have a much larger business with our salespeople who are independent contractor salespeople mm -hmm. who are around the country. Right. And as I have suggested or implied in my previous comments, those salespeople are going to lose over the long term without their having some e-commerce support. Right. So the consequence of this is, and the beauty of our company is, we have had to invest a whole lot of money in a product database, an e-commerce platform, and a whole lot of other related things. And so even though we have two businesses that are totally separate and the databases and the customers are behind a brick wall, essentially, between the two firms, yep. uh, under the covers, we are able to amortize and share some of these tools to help the other side of the business. So right now we're in the, in the process of deploying some tools that were built for Crestline or bought for Crestline, or we're able to invest in things for both sides of the business because we can amortize and share the costs in a way that we couldn't afford to do. Right. It was just, let's say, doing something for the Geiger sales force. Right. So under the covers, 
we've got some things that are helping both sides of the business because there is a convergence here or, or there is a, a situation where every buyer expects a certain amount of e-commerce, Amazon-like technology to see products, to order products, to see their order history, to place a reorder, to do this and that, and that will only get bigger and more significant. Right. So essentially, as a larger company, we are spending a lot of money, and wherever we can use it to facilitate both sides of the business we are, mm. even though we go to market in a very different way. And I might add that Crestline's customer base is very different from the Geiger base. We did a test the other day, and over the last eight years, the number of shared customers we've had by accident or by whatever is less than a few dozen. Right. And we just try to keep them very separate. Right. I think it's a testament to how huge the uh, the industry really is in terms of all the different opportunities. I'm curious, I asked this question for those that are listening that are managing a sales force of really any size, because managing, of course, is, is a challenge for a lot of leaders. Gene, I know that you've got over 500 independent salespeople that are part of the Geiger network. I know that you've got some that are on the younger side of the continuum. You've got some salespeople that have been with you for a long, long time and are at the older side of the equation. How do you sell this technology and this change in the overall sales climate across a diverse sales organization where you've got people that are going to be open to change and other people that go, well, what are you talking about? I, I just write calendar orders every year. How do you manage that? Is well, it like up or out? Or? <laughs> oh, that is fascinating. Um, you cannot force people to make major changes quickly. Mm. And when you have independent contractors who have a book of business, or mm. even, even employee salespeople have a book of business, yep. you force people to change how they work at your own peril because anyone can go anywhere else. Even if they work in a company as an employee, they can generally move if they want to. So an awful lot of it is education, explanation, teaching, showing, demonstrating, and good examples. And uh, I've been talking about this stuff for a good couple of years now. And uh, we have an annual, big annual sales meeting where I make a, a big presentation. And then for two years, I've been explaining why this is so important. And then people going into meeting rooms where they've seen some of the tools we're offering for them, and they get hands-on demonstrations. And as you can expect in any group of people, you've got 20%, 25% that are, Yahoo, let's try it out. I can't wait. And then you've got other people that are skeptical. And some people, even today in our organization, even though we have an online order entry system, we still get Excel spreadsheets mm. uh, with orders coming in that we have to process. Right. It's pretty amazing how that stuff works. Mm. And what happens is people often have a tendency to say no or say it doesn't work or it doesn't apply to me or this or that. And then if, if something positive happens, then they can turn around. I know that we have one of our salespeople who, who has been poo-pooing having his own website, essentially his front door into our website full of product and such. And in fact, I can think of several who are like that. And then all of a sudden, they get two or three orders that come in unbeknownst to them. And it's like, wow, this is really great. Right. How come I'm right. not getting more, more of these orders? In fact, one guy the other day who didn't like the idea of what we were doing and really caused a bit of a uh, questioning of it was on a phone call talking about how great it was. And he wishes he was getting more orders this way. Mm. Um, I think in general, what people are going to find is there's going to be a balance for any given customer and we've got to have a, a system that 
allows customers to deal with us however they want to deal with us. And if we put the emphasis on customers and meeting their needs, over time, I think people will begin to come along. Right. And what we'll see is salespeople working with customers on projects, on challenges, on problems. But then when someone wants to reorder the 500 pens they ordered last September, they'll push a button and they'll get ordered and it'll be over and done with. The sales rep will get his commission, his or her commission, and the customer will be happy because the thing got done on a Sunday night when they had a few minutes after the ball game, right. what are the pens they needed? Right. Yeah, and no, I think human beings are just naturally inclined to reject change. <laughs> I think it's in our human yeah. nature. So I think it's, and I can reflect on my time in, in the industry as well, and I think about always trying to think about new and interesting ways of working and dealing with customers, and, and I think that it comes down to a few things and, and a lot of what you just said in terms of making sure it's not forced upon someone create an environment where they can see the benefit themselves as opposed to you necessarily having to, to force them to see the benefit. And I think it takes patience as well. I'll tell you a big driver of change is fear and fear of loss of business. Yeah. We had a, in our last summer sales meeting, I was giving a presentation and my colleague Dale Denham was helping me out and we were talking about some things. We were talking about our e-commerce strategy and the, the tools we're building for our salespeople and so on. And Dale asked the entire room how many of them had had an experience where a customer went shopping on 4imprint's website yeah. and then subsequently sent them a note saying, can you find this for me? And I would say 90, 95% of the hands in the room went up. And we then said to them, now, Imagine what happens when the day occurs that the customer who goes looking for this product finds it so convenient to buy from 4imprint that they don't bother getting back to you. Yep. Uh, this is why you need to have a comparable presence so that when the customer wants to go online, they can do so in addition to your talking to them live on a given issue. Yep. So essentially, the fear of what might happen is also a propellant to pay attention to things that you wouldn't otherwise have thought about two years ago or three years ago or without some impetus like that. It's hard to believe, just taking a look at our time here, that we, we don't have a ton more time. And I've got a list of probably 15 questions that I want to ask you, Gene, which, is, <laughs> which suggests that we may have to do another version of this. But uh, I, I, I wanted to, and thank you so much for your candor and your honesty. I think it was really quite fascinating to get your perspective. I'm curious, here's a big one for you, Gene. What unaddressed white elephant in this industry terrifies you the most? Well, the issue of product safety and product responsibility is something that is looming large for everyone. Yep. And I've been involved in that with PPAI, and, and I'm chair of, of uh, the Product Safety Committee of PPAI. Beyond that, I think the biggest fearful thing I've got is what I've been talking about so much. And that is, the world is becoming Amazonized. And how fast and how well can our company, can we transition to having very robust online offerings? And I'm not just talking about putting pictures and prices on a website. I'm talking about the ability for customers to configure orders and place orders with confidence and to have that to be done very easily so that 
they want to come and work with us and, mm -hmm. and do business with us. And what I worry about is whether our firm can move fast enough and smart enough to be as competitive as whoever might be out there. And, and whether that's Alibaba or Amazon jumping in or Zazzle becoming more Zazzleized or for imprint just running away with things. Mm. Can we get out in front of this thing and not be cut off at the pass? And the other thing that, that comes into my mind, because I don't understand it well enough, and you know a lot more about it, Mark, than I do, and that is how to tame and use and understand social media. How does social media in the future evolve and affect how people learn, how they communicate, and how do we figure out how to build social media into our thinking, into our business tools, into how we go to market, because it's a whole parallel universe of communication, interaction, yep. and it's moving so fast. Absolutely. And I mean, th this single topic right here could cover <laughs> another call. And I'm thinking as you talk about this Amazonization, uh, if that's a word, <laughs> of, of the industry or of the world and how it's imperative that you get ahead of it and so that you can compete with For Imprint and Alibaba, so on and so forth. And when I hear that, a part of me says, you're absolutely right. And another part of me says, is it the right thing? This is maybe more of a question and a comment mixed together. What does the industry look like if all it exists or all that it is comprised of are a bunch of companies that can process orders online? And ergo, well, but, but, what is the but, difference? But I was, maybe I didn't say it very well. For us, I think our strategy is to have the best hmm. of both smart, knowledgeable salespeople yep. who are teamed up with tools to make it easy for customers to do whatever they want to do. Right. So, for example, a smart there's nothing better than a smart man or woman who knows products, knows the industry, knows the customers, knows their issues, and all that stuff. But the transactional side is enabled by the tools. Yep. And so, the customer talks to Joe Blow or Susie Q about this problem, but can go online and place a, an easy reorder, or can go online and see all the stuff he or she has bought in the last year or can go online and do some doodling and project planning and then interact with the salesperson who can say, wait a minute, you really don't want this product because that one is junky and you wouldn't like it, it wouldn't fit, but let's try this. Mm. And they work together collaboratively using those tools. So I think our solution or our competitive edge is not going to be just to be a, a, a for-imprint alone, mm. but to have for-imprint-like capabilities or Amazon-like capabilities to merge and support the people that know the industry, know the business, know the medium, know the customers. Yeah. A mentor of mine has said to me that the key to success really in any business is the combination of two things, people and process. And I'm kind of adapting <laughs> what he's said to me over the years to what you just said in that I think it's really the people if I can make a loose comparison here, I think it's the people, the creativity, the strategic counsel is really where you've got the unique edge and the magic in this industry, yet at the same time, it's the process, whether it's uh, e-commerce or whether it's order management or whether it's just effectively making sure that order always gets to IBM when they order it. I think that's the stuff that in the next five to ten years will almost be just taken for granted. 
I mean, think about ordering from Amazon.com right now. It's not particularly exciting to order a book and get it the next day. That's just the way it is. So I think it's really, really interesting to see this industry evolve to a point where we've all got access to great tools, whether we're all competing firms, but where the real edge is, is in the people and the creativity and how it is that they're able to harness those tools to really differentiate themselves. Um, Gee, Mark, I'm going to have to I'm going to have to listen to this podcast and write down what you said because what you said is better than what I said, and I'm going to use that when I talk to our sales force the next time. But essentially, <laughs> I think what you said is the right thing. It's it's merging these two things, and technology ultimately will be taken for granted, but it, it's got to be there, and and it's got to be ubiquitous and just drop dead simple, and supporting what smart, good people can do. Yeah one-on-one with their customers. Yeah, well, hey, we'll see where it, uh, <laughs> where it takes us in the next five to ten years. But I, I really feel that that's the case, and I, and I look at what differentiates one company from another in this industry, and oftentimes it's, it's not boring things like, we've got good service or we'll ship your order on time. I mean, and, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head, we all have access to great suppliers like Leeds and Ash City and Alpha Broder and Sanmar and so on and so forth. Whether it's Right Sleeve that is buying a shirt from Sanmar or whether it's Geiger that's buying a shirt from Sanmar, we can both get that shirt to the end customer on time because Sanmar is the one who's shipping it. So unless they screw it up, <laughs> uh, which I don't think they will, we just take that for granted, yet the differentiating point could be that relationship or the creative uh, element or, or something that is a little bit more strategic that then adds value on top of it. So I think that we've been talking about this as an industry for the last 20 years, and it's, and I don't think what you're saying is any different as we evolve into the future. It's just a, a matter of making sure that we can continue to hone in on what makes us really amazing as distributor firms. Absolutely. Gene, Wow. I'm so excited that we had this chance to, uh, to to speak, and I wanted to thank you on behalf of the entire Promo Kitchen community and certainly on behalf of everyone in the industry who happens to be listening to the podcast. Uh, a huge and sincere thanks. Your insights are, are really, really quite interesting, and I've been, I've been jotting notes down here as well as we've been going through it. So thank you, sir. Is there anything else you want to say? It was just a pleasure. I, I can't imagine how quickly time has gone by here as we've been talking, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, and I hope there was something I said today that was of some value to uh, people listening out there, and perhaps we, we could pick it up and talk again sometime. Would absolutely love it. Thank you so much, Gene. That was a real, real pleasure. My pleasure, Mark.